Good morning, church. Hope you're having a fab weekend. Particular welcome if you're new and you're visiting us. My name's Gareth, part of the team here. Been here for just over nine and a half years. Really grateful for all that we've been seeing the Lord doing and excited about what we're going to see the Lord do um, here in the future as well. And if you are new and you're visiting, then do go um, to the welcome point and introduce yourself. Stick around. Come and join us for teas and coffees. That would be ace. And if you're watching online or listening, thank you so much for tuning in as well. Um, We are coming to the end of our teaching series as we've looked at the nature of God in his image. Who is God? And we've been drawing out some of the characteristics of God from this passage in Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, uh, please turn to Exodus 34. If you've not, there are some just here down at the front, um, proper paper ones, um, um, but feel free to turn it on um, to whichever device you're using this morning. I wonder, um, to get us thinking, what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing you've ever done? Now, I don't mean singing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody at the work Christmas karaoke do, however dreadful that was for your work colleagues. What's the worst thing that you've ever done? Maybe it's something that comes to mind and you know it's something that you've done and no one else knows about it. Well, yet, perhaps. I wonder what's the worst thing that you've ever said. Now, again, I don't mean those silly, dumb things that can sometimes come out of our mouth. Um, similar to the, this um, quote that I came from Britney, um, from Britney Spears, that wonderful theologian um, of pop culture. Um, she said this, apparently, I never really wanted to go to Japan simply because I don't like eating fish, and I know that's very popular out there in Africa. I don't know about you, but I know that there are plenty of things that I have said and done that if you were to know, I would be deeply embarrassed. Even things this week, I'm sure. What's the worst thing for you? Maybe a moment of ferocious anger directed at your children or the poisonous words that came out of your mouth to your spouse or a family member or a friend that thing you stole, maybe, or the opportunity that you had to help someone and you knew you could, but you chose not to or to turn a blind eye. What's the worst? You know, all of humanity stands alongside each other with the wrong things that we've ever said, done, or thought. And those things that we failed to say or failed to do or act upon that could have a positive outcome. We're, in many ways, we're all like sticks of Blackpool rock. And rather than kiss me quick etched in the middle, we have this propensity to sin, to rebel. I know sin isn't a popular Word. It's not a topic of dinner conversations, is it? It's not popular, it's not sexy, but it is biblical. And this morning we're going to think about humanity's nature to sin and God's nature to forgive. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, as we're going to remind ourselves of these words Words of God, 
Words that God uses to describe himself to Moses. 34 verse 6. This is what God says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We're going to stop there. I'm so grateful um, that I got the passage um, where we're going to be considering generational sin. (laughs) Thanks for that one, whoever put me on the rotor. But um, we will get there. We will get, get there. And trust me, it is good news. But um, as a way of a background to this passage, most commentators, most biblical commentators that look at the Exodus and look at these verses, verses um, 6 and 7, where God speaks about his nature, would say that you can't isolate those verses. They they, um, They have to stand together in the narrative of Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. And if you've um, got a Bible, you could flick back a couple of pages or swipe left a little bit to Exodus 32. And we'll read about the account of Israel. Because in chapters, in, in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, God is renewing his covenant promise with his people. He's restating, he's re, um, reaffirming who he is in relation to his people. And why is it that God is having to renew this covenant promise with his people? In short, because as a people, they've rebelled. They've rebelled against God. In a moment of impatience, they've been waiting at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the people of God, and Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and it appears that for some reason Moses is delayed. So they take control, the people of God. They take matters into their own hands because they've lost faith in Moses. And so here's what they do. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. And, and the word that's used for gathered is, is, is slightly, it's, it's, it's like they're press ganging Aaron. They're, they're really getting around Aaron and giving him some, a, a bit of peer pressure. And he says, come, they say, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got to indulge in revelry. Basically, indulge in in revelry is Old Testament language for there was a little bit of a drunken orgy going on. That's pretty much what was happening. See, in their impatience of waiting on Moses and waiting for God, they take matters into their own hands. 
Fear and panic comes across the people of God. I wonder if in our impatience, do we ever venture to take matters into our own hands? You know, maybe you're waiting on God for something. Maybe you've been waiting on God for an answer to a particular prayer or, or a, you know, a situation um, in your life. And it set you, feels like God isn't working, that God isn't um, in the process somewhere. And you're getting frustrated and maybe fear and maybe panic are starting to come in. And so there could be a tendency to take things into the, um, our own hands. I wonder if you do that. Impatient with God. Well, in Exodus 32, it seems that there's no deliberation, there's no plotting, there's no indication as to what really motivates God's people to do what they do, other than Moses is delayed up the mountain meeting with God. And so they pressure Aaron to meet their request to build, to create a visual representative of God. And rebellion rears its ugly head. And on the surface, this is nothing less than a, than a gross act of rebellion of God. They reject God and join in in worshipping the pagans, pagan, pagan gods of the surrounding nations. And it's, it appears on the surface that that is what's happening, and there's truth in that. It is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. But there's more going on here. You see, it's important to remember that Moses was their point of contact, their means of access to God. Moses was their point of access to God. But Moses um, is taking his time, and so out of panic and fear, they take matters into their own hands because they've lost contact with God. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like you've lost contact with God? If you're here today, the Lord is here. The Lord is here for you. His presence is with us. But you may have felt that you've lost contact. It might be, I don't know about you, but you know, as a leadership and as a PCC, as we've been exploring and thinking around some of the finances in, in the life of this church, it's just like, God, what's going on? You know, are we losing contact with you, God? Are you, are you, are you in this process? Or is, or is it that we've done something wrong, that we're not getting something right? And what happens to the people of Israel um, here in Exodus 32 is that in response to them, their, 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 their apparent loss of contact with God, they take matters into their own hands and the people, here's the interesting thing, the people use their wealth. They use their wealth, they, they use their gold to fashion an image of God like one of the other pagan gods. They've lost their point of contact with God, so they create for themselves a representative idol of God. And then they then worship this idol, declaring that this was the God that brought them out of Egypt. Here's an image of maybe what that scene could have looked like I mean, all that gold, all that wealth, and they worship it as a representative object of God. And in one foul swoop, one foul swoop, get this, in one foul swoop, in a moment of panic and fear, they disobey the three first commandments of God. In a moment, they disobey God. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment one. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth or beneath the waters below, commandment two. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, commandment three. Immediately, they disobeyed the three first commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous for our attention, church. He is jealous for your time and your attention. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here we are, generational sin again. But contrast the generational sin of the third to the fourth generation with the abounding, extravagant love of God, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If we love God and keep his, his word true to our hearts, there's blessing. The root problem of the sin of Israel here is idolatry. It's idolatry. And idolatry is basically putting anything in the place and the priority of God in our life. I wonder if you've put anything in the place of God in your life. And the root problem of their sin is that they failed to trust God. And they put their trust in an object of their wealth. What's more, they dehumanize themselves in the process, in that they, they create this divine representative of God. Let me ask you a question. If you know the Genesis story, in the Genesis story, who was created in the image and likeness of God? We were, thank you, Bob. We were created to be God's divine representative on the earth. We were created to be his presence in the world. And by creating this golden calf made out of their wealth as a representative of the presence of God that they would worship it, they're dehumanizing themselves. Because the calf is taking place of who, from the very beginnings and the foundations of the earth, they, as the people of God, were created to be. You know, in the wonderful story of creation, when God created the cosmos and he created it and it was good, he created humanity, he created you and I as the pinnacle of his creation, that we would be in his image, his image bearers in the world, to walk in his presence, to be in proximity of intimate relationship. And then as we know the story, Adam and Eve sinned, falling into the trap of Satan, and the result is what? They're cast out of God's presence. And ever since then, the people of God have been trying to get back into the presence of God. And in some twisted distortion of rebellion at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God's people make an idol of their wealth to represent what humanity had lost in the garden. 
His presence. I wonder, are we people of the presence? You know, could it be that in our Western society that the sin of putting our trust in money, the sin of putting our trust in wealth, the sin of putting our trust in self, I can do it. You might not articulate it as a Christian, but maybe by your actions, that's what you're living out, that, that, that self-belief that I can do this. I mean, of course I need God, but I can do it. We put our trust in things, in people, in our wealth. Could it be that that sin of putting our trust in other things is, is obscuring us from a greater sense and a greater outpouring of God's presence in the church and in our lives. When we put things before God. And in a place like Cheltenham, in the, with all the entrapment of wealth, could that be true of us? Could that be true of me? Rebellion through trusting in what is false. Sin by putting our trust in what is false. I mean, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a great place to be. And if the result of sinful living, of rebellion, is punishment to the third and fourth generations, what might that mean for us? Well, hold on for a minute. You see, the story of Exodus doesn't end here because Moses comes through. Rebellion leads to mediation. There is a mediator. In Exodus 32, verse 11, just have a look at this. Moses pleads with God. He says, turn from your anger, relent from destruction. Remember your promises to Abraham. That, that, that Israel would be a great nation. And Moses, he is an incredible negotiator. I mean, he is par excellence in terms of his negotiating skills because he intercedes on behalf of the people before almighty God. And God relents and holds back his wrath of judgment on the people of Israel. And it's really important that we understand the seriousness of sin and that sin leads to judgment. It's not a popular topic, I know. But God is a jealous God. God is jealous for your attention. God is jealous for my time and my energy and my attention. And God relents as Moses intercedes. Moses, on coming down the mountain, is disgusted with what he sees and he, he breaks the Ten Commandments and they crumble into pieces. And as they crumble into pieces, the covenant relationship with God falls to the ground. That deeper intimacy of the presence of God is lost. Relationship is broken. Why should God protect them? Why should God lead them into the promised land? Why should he provide for them? Relationship is broken. In verse 30 of Exodus 32, just um, turn to this. He, we read this. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses went back to the Lord and said, and when you read the the, the Deuteronomy accounts of this, Moses is with God for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, this is no small thing. I wonder where where you've heard about 40 days and 40 nights before and who was in that place of perhaps mediation 40 days and 40 nights in a wilderness place. Moses went back to the Lord, verse 31, and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And we read this in verse 35. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So what happens here? What happens here? In his attempt to make things right between God and his people, Moses pleads for the lives of Israel. And he pleads to the extent, basically saying, God, take me instead. Let me take the place of your people. Take my life. Don't take their life. Don't wipe them out. But take me. Moses is able to mediate with God a solution that guarantees Israel's ongoing existence and to keep God close by. But here's the thing. God still reserves his punishment for sin. We read that in verse 35. And God strikes the people with a plague. We don't know what plague it was, but it doesn't appear to be one that destroys them. You see, sin has its consequences. Sin has its consequences. The point here is that there is punishment for sin. There is punishment for rebellion against God. Where rebellion exists... Without atonement to God, righteousness, transformation can't come. You know, I'd love to go further if we had time into Exodus 33, and it's an incredible passage, and I encourage you this week, just, just, just dwell in Exodus 33 and how Moses again talks and meets with God, and he cries out to God for his presence to go with them as a people. But the good news is that God promises his presence with his people. And now in Exodus 34, God is reinforcing his covenant promise with his people. These verses that we've been sitting in, the Lord, the Lord compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger. His covenant promise. You know, once the relationship with God was on a knife edge, it was nearly coming to an end. God was going to just wipe them out from the face of the earth. But God relented as Moses mediated. And he, God reinstates and restores this relationship back together. There's rebellion, there's mediation, and then there is restoration. This is the good news, people. How does that come? God forgives. If there's two words that you go away with today, go away with these two words. God forgives. He forgives 
his people. His very nature is to forgive. And God is clear. He is patient with us and willing to forgive. But forgiveness doesn't mean overlooking sin. Nor will God leave the guilty unpunished. In fact, in line with the penalty for breaking the second commandment, idolatry, false worship, trusting in other things other than God, we've talked about that, punishment extends to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? You know, it'd be very easy to read Exodus 32 and 34 and think, how can God punish generation after generation? You know, of course, we need to hold that in contrast with the love that he pours out to the thousand generations. But is the God of Exodus 32 and 34 one we find comfortable? I don't think so. Well, whether we find God comfortable or not is besides the point. But does Exodus track with what we know about the compassionate, gracious, and forgiving God? Yes, the forgiving God. And here's the thing. There's a huge theological difference between Exodus 32 and 34 and the church today. You see, for Israel at Mount Sinai, there was no means of atonement. The tabernacle the place of worship, the, the, the place where sacrifices would be offered, offered wasn't in place yet in the history of Israel. The priestly sacrifice system, that wasn't in place, which is why Moses himself offered himself as an atonement for Israel's sin. There was no means of the punishment being paid for through the sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament, the Jewish tradition was familiar with generational punishment. Now, we're, of course, familiar with generational consequences, aren't we? Consequences of sin. You know, it's true that my sin may have an effect on my son, Jacob. Your sin may have some consequences that are worked out in your children's lives. We see that in our culture time and time again. Thousands of children on a daily basis experience the consequences of the sins of their parents' infidelity. Broken families, broken homes, and it seems unfair. And it seems like those consequences feel like punishment. But it's a consequence of the sin not punishment from God. Here's the incredible good news of the gospel. For us as God's church, here at Trinity, and for all Christians across the world today, it is the final, it is finished. The words that were said when Jesus Christ paid the price for all the sin of all humanity in all history. The punishment has been paid in full. Amen? You see, God is not angry because his anger, his wrath, his judgment has been put on Jesus. That doesn't mean, by the way, that God isn't, is soft on sin. He isn't. 
God is a jealous God. Exodus 32, 34 shows us how intolerant God is of the sin of his people. But, God, but the gospel shows us that God's ultimate punishment for sin was carried out and laid to die on the cross of Calvary. The price has been paid. That is the good news that we live in today. That Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai hadn't encountered yet the mediator, the one who would pay the price for all of their sin and their rebellion. Jesus Christ, God's son. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that illustration that James showed. How does God see you and I? He sees us through the cross of Calvary and he sees us righteous before God. The reality of our sin is that our efforts of doing good can never cover sin. Sin separates us from a holy God and sin leads to just punishment because God is a just God. But 2,000 years ago, on a bleak hill outside the city gates of an occupied city in the armpit of the Roman Empire on Judgment Day, God in Jesus, God in flesh, God took our place. God took your place. God is the forgiving God. He who knew sin became sin for us and God laid on him the iniquity of us all, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hallelujah. You know, in, um, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Edmund is sentenced to death. I'm sure you've seen the film by the, um, the White Witch and Aslan volunteers to take Edmund's place. And Aslan lays on the stone altar and he's stabbed to death by the White Witch and he dies in Edmund's place. And he dies Edmund's deserved death. Watch this. Gets me every time. You know, I don't just realize, I don't just seen, it just came to me then, it was again just two women at the tomb. Two women at the tomb. He's risen. He is risen. Punishment for my sin, punishment for your sin, the price has been paid. That is the good news. That is the good news that we live out, that we don't keep to ourselves in our wonderful little four walls of our church, but we share with a hurting, broken world that needs Jesus. That's why we exist as a church to make committed followers of Jesus who will change communities and nations for him. So what's our response? What's our response to this wonderful gift of life in relationship 
through Jesus paying the price for us. I wonder if our response is repentance, that we would choose to turn away for those things that we know that get in the way of our relationship with God. I've already talked about those. But here's my question as I land. What's your golden calf? What's your golden calf? What is the thing for you that might be getting in the way of you obscuring a greater presence of Jesus in your life? Is it people? Is it self-dependency? Is it money? Is it wealth? Is it, you know, the things that you, the things that you have? What are the things that get in the way of you trusting God on a greater increase? Peter, when he gets up at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our repentance and in our turning to God and baptism representing, choosing to declare publicly, not just at a a time when you're baptized in water, but when you go from here to live out your life for Jesus with your work colleagues in the doctor's surgery, in the school, in the office, with with your neighbors, and you proclaim Jesus is Lord, we go empowered by the Spirit. Amen? Let's stand, church. We have time before we need to pick up children, so we don't need to rush away. Let's be still for a moment. Let's be still. I want to invite you to close your eyes, hold out your hands. The Lord is here and his spirit is here for you. The spirit is here for you to help you live your life for the glory and for the name of Jesus. So invite him to come. I encourage you in this moment to just pray a simple prayer. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Father, would you send down your spirit and bless your church now. We need you. We need you to be all that you've created and called us to be since the foundations of the earth. Holy Spirit, come. Invite the Spirit to come and let's wait.